All right. Good seeing you. I made it. Yeah. Yep. Survived. All that is uh, well and good. And um, I don't know if you noticed or not, but we got our lettering back up finally. I'm going to actually set that there because I need room. How about that? It, uh, it expresses, goes to the idea of why we exist as a church. So we want to lead people into that abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. We want it to be an authentic connection that, that people come into, into that faith and that, that union with Christ and walk with Him and their strength then and everything in their life derives from that. So uh, that's why we have it in the sanctuary to see. But uh, it's also in your bulletin at the bottom. It states that, you know, the reason why we exist. So that's what that's about. I personally didn't like the color of the letters myself, but uh, I'm a color snob. I didn't think that was the right color of black to go with, but anyway, sorry. Jumping into it, you know, I know a pastor who experienced something truly unsettling. He was called to a new church. That part wasn't unsettling, but um, he got to work right away, and and, uh, he started to have a, a pretty good ministry where There were new people coming to the church. Some of them were coming out of unbelief, coming to faith. Some of them were transfers. Some of them baby Christians and so forth. But the church was growing. And and you hear that and you think, well, wow, that sounds like the recipe for a long-lasting, fruitful ministry, right? No, not so much. He lasted about a year after that. Uh, After several months, he started getting pushback from the people that had called him initially. And uh, he's like, well, what's, what's, you know, what am I doing wrong? And they're like, well, we called you with the idea that you would bring people back that had left the church, our friends, our family, our connections, and that we would get the church the way we expected the church. We didn't expect these people that you've brought. They're not from the crowd of people we wanted to be part of that church. They said that more or less bluntly, uh, maybe not in those exact words, but pretty close. And, uh, and yeah, like I said, he didn't last much more than a year beyond that. I'm not talking about myself, by the way, just in case you're thinking that was a crafty way of um, disguising myself, but it's not an abnormal story if you think about it, if you know churches in general. Birds of a feather flock together, and that is a truism you can't completely ignore. It is part of just human development that we tend to trust people who, and this, again, not altogether wrong, by nature, we trust people that we are like us to some extent. We they speak the same language. We kind of look the same. We have similar backgrounds, similar values, those kinds of things, which are probably protective and good in one scenario. But when it comes to the church, that can just be a, a, a huge, huge hindrance. What that pastor experienced is something that most churches go through, even if not quite on that kind of level. By that, I mean... Churches are like rivers. You never step into the same river twice. Yes, you've heard that expression? Meaning the water is always changing. It's never the same water. It's never, so it's never the same river. The, ch- the church will always be changing. If you have the idea ever that you're, that you're going to be part of a church and that church is just going to stay the community you want it to be, it will never be that way. And eventually what happens is after so many years, no matter who's in, at the helm Uh, who's pastoring, and a lot of times people will blame the pastor, but you'll hear people say things like, and please don't, I'm not stepping on your toes if you've said something like this to me. It's a natural thing to say, but people will say, you know what, it doesn't feel like my church anymore. Which, just that story, just, just that statement alone in itself, if you really think about it, 
my church. It's not my church anymore. People say, I just, I saw these new people there and I thought they were new. Turns out they've been going there for three years. How did that happen? How, why, why? And they're tearing their hair out and they feel so bad about it. Um, we're going we're gonna to look at this today uh, in a similar uh, passage of Scripture that kind of gets at this. Uh, even though in its historical context, it, it, you know, this was, it wasn't speaking to us directly. It was the historical development of the church. But it is this, uh, this um, after effect, after Peter has gone to Cornelius' home. He goes there. You remember? It was a great success. If you want to think of what a successful ministry looks like, how could you be more successful than Peter was? He goes, the gospel is preached, the gospel is heard and believed upon, and everyone there, to a man, a woman, and child, every single person there believes the Holy Spirit falls upon them, they speak in tongues. It's the second Pentecost. Um, It is the Pentecost of the Gentiles. And for that trouble, be sure that no good deed will go unpunished. The church is... The, the church, when I say the church, I mean the church back in Jerusalem, the church of Judea, those are the apostles and the brothers there, they're fit to be tied. They're fit to be tied. So here's our big idea, to, big idea today. Embrace your church as God's chosen family for you. How many already had problems with that when you read it in the bulletin? What do you mean? I chose this church. Yeah, we, t- we tend to think it's all on us, but when you make yourself part of a church, when you make yourself, when God brings you in and, he, and enfolds you into church, that church, your church, is a gift of God. And as it develops and changes, which it will, that is, and the people in there, those are God's gifts. I, I had a different idea when I started. This is the positive spin, but you know I'm kind of a snarky person. So my, my original, uh, and I wanted to give it to you anyway, even though I didn't go with it, is uh, if you don't like your church family, Blame God. Yeah, but I thought that was a little irreverent. So anyway, you've got to so embrace, and I really feel like this is, is a truth that comes through the text very, very clearly. We're going to look at, at well, I don't count them, but truths to persuade our heart to this. Because rationally, you could go home right now. You, you agree with me, right? That we should embrace this is, maybe you don't. I think you probably already do, but it's such a head thing, but it's so hard as a heart thing. And I'm with you on that. How many have ever felt sorrow over the change that a church has gone through? And even when the, ch- even when the change ostensibly was a good change, but it just, the church stopped looking like what you expected, you, you f- and, and I know exactly how that feels. So first of all, this is just kind of setting the stage. God has the right to call the wrong kind of people. God has a right to call the wrong kind of people. Anybody want to take issue with that? They should have known that. Go back a little bit to, um, uh, I'm sorry, yeah. Let's start with verses 1 through 3. We'll come back to that in a second. But it says, Now the apostles and the brothers uh, were, uh, who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. You talk about burying the headline. I mean, uh, good night. The, the, this great revival, and what, it, what is their takeaway? You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. How could you do that? And this came from the so-called circumcision party. How many have ever been to a circumcision party, by the way? Uh, if we, were, if we were Jewish people, there are such things. It's kind of like a Tupperware party, but you get together and 
and you bring Reuben, and, uh, and it's, you, make a, you make a day of it. And that's, uh, but no, the, the circumcision party here is actually speaking of a group of people within the church. It, it may not be translated correctly because at this point, this is very early in the history of the church, and whether there was a defined you know, circumcision party is hard to say, but there was the beginning of it. Which, which would be those people who felt that, oh, if you want to bring the Gentiles into Christianity, which, of course, they didn't use that word, just Judaism, if you want to bring them in, let them become Jews first. Then they can become, if you want, followers of the Messiah. But there shouldn't be this leapfrog over circumcision, over kosher laws, over the whole ritualistic laws of the Old Testament. They, they, they have to go through that. No, no, no jumping in, uh, in front of the queue. Think of how esteemed and beloved Peter would have been in this community. This is just, remember we had the, the, the scattering of the church after the stoning of Stephen. All that was left in Jerusalem of that church were really the apostles and some of these brothers. That's who is there. And yet look at the word that's used here. They criticized him. Now, modern pastors, pastors never have to deal with that. But back in the day, people were harsh they they, even though they respected Peter, they were going to take him up short. How could such good news have been taken so badly? It literally says that um, they heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. What word of God had they received? It was the gospel. That should have been fantastic news. That was the lead in the story. Not that Peter had gone to uncircumcised ministers. The gospel was preached, and the gospel was believed upon even by Gentiles. They cannot see the beauty of the miracle because of the blindness uh, to the tr- uh, by the trespass. Imagine, if you will, a small-town golf course. And I want to say that any similarity to any, any actual golf courses is completely Unintended, but just imagine for a moment a small town golf course with say 18 holes, just a beautiful little course, and uh, started by the real, real, real rich people of the town back in the day. Back in the day, again, no similarity to anyone. Knew. But um, but imagine such a place, and uh, it's a great golf course initially because you got all of this money flowing into it. But as time goes on, just like churches, towns change. There's not quite as many rich people. All of a sudden, people realize that that is not nearly the course it once was, and it turns out there's not nearly as many members in it, and it's just bleeding red, bleeding red. And, and so they get some whippersnapper, some wunderkind to come in and, and, and be the course manager. And he comes into town. He rolls up his sleeves. He gets a little money invested. He, he gets the course just back to, you know, primo condition and gets all the cart rentals uh, ready to go. And then he brings in hundreds of new members, but not at the old price point. Price point has gone from here to... There. And it's great success. How do you think those old few members that are left are feeling about that at that moment? How dare he come in here and ruin our course? We didn't want those people. If we'd wanted those people, we could have done this a long time ago. Does God have the right to call the wrong kind of people? That's the question on our heart here. Can he call the Gentiles? Can he go to the highways and byways? When those who were invited don't come to the feast, can he go out, send his servants to say, hey, you who are poor and crippled and blind and lame, you're welcome here now as well. Is God allowed? I mean, it's a dumb question, dumb rhetorical question to ask, but we, you know, can he make 
our church what he wants it to be? Is God at liberty to do that? Peter's uh, on the horns of a dilemma here. What is he going to do? How is he going to answer for this? He could just tell him to, ah, just shut your yaps. That would have been how um, John MacArthur would have handled it. But um, Peter's a little more diplomatic. He's, uh, he's going to handle it a different way. If you boil down Peter's response, his response is, don't blame me, blame God. Uh, God made me do it. Something along uh, some, along some uh, those lines. Look at uh, verse 4. It says, but Peter began and explained it to them in order. So Peter's nicer than you or me. He's just going to take them through the story. He's not going to tell them how they have to feel. He's not going to get his back up and say, hey, I am Peter. Who are you talking to? He's going to take them through the story, and, and he's going to show them these truths to get it to, and it does, it drops. They get the point, but it takes, it takes the, that explanation. So first of all, God is sovereign over whom he calls. He is sovereign over whom he calls, which we should know. I was going to allude to this earlier because I was a little ahead of myself, but now look at um, chapter 2, verse 39. This is when he's preaching at Pentecost. And he says, for the promise is for you, and for your, he's speaking to Jews there, remember, Pretty much the crowd that's there now in Jerusalem, minus a few. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, how do you think that landed on their ears at that point? Sounded good. Hey, the promise is for you. We love that. Oh, it's for me. And for your children. Oh, that's what I want my church to be. Me and my children. That's pretty much... All I need, right there. And for those who are far off, well, okay, all right. See, there were a lot of Jews dispersed throughout the world, and, and that probably sounded actually pretty good to them. But then there's this sort of uh, elastic clause. We might call it the et cetera at the end of that, where he says, and all, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And I don't think they saw in that, that principle that God is sovereign over these things. Whoever ends up in this church the church universal that throughout time, but also the church locally, that's God's, it's, it's his bailiwick. It's his wheelhouse. He gets to do what he wants to do, if that makes sense to you. I hope it does. Uh, to show it was God's doing, he starts ticking off how God was engaged in this. First of all, God gave the vision. One might have imagined at first that maybe this is just the, the, the ramblings of some guy that was really hungry and fell into a diabetic coma or something like that. I've been told, by the way, that that's not a real thing. So, I, um, so for those, but apparently, um, apparently I think there could be such a thing. <laughs> anyway, it's, it, it, you, could, you could toss it off and say, well, maybe it's just a dream. Peter takes him up on the rooftop with him, so to speak, and he, and he tells about this sailcloth kind of four-corner deal, rectangle, square, coming down, and there's all these animals he even throws in a different category of animal, an additional category. Did you know that? It's always fun to look at the, when stories are retold many times in the scripture, it's always interesting to see uh, details that will be added. I'm not saying that they're made up, but I'm just saying details we didn't get before that we get, and some details get left out. And he, and he throws in another whole category of animal there. I think the ESV has beasts of prey. It's the Greek word theria. You know that Greek word theria. And... Uh, uh, you had to worry about Thuria. 
Um, they, were not, uh, they were not happy, good animals that you wanted to deal with because if you went to the Colosseum, if you had to fight animals in the arena, they were the Thuria that you were fighting. When Paul is on the Isle of Malta and he gets bit by the viper and he shakes it off, so it shook off the Thuria. So it, they're not good animals. They're certainly not on the uh, list of the you know, menu of things that Jewish people could eat. Jewish people could not eat any predators. I don't know if you're, to my knowledge, maybe somebody will correct me on that. I guess if chickens are you know, killing worms or something, maybe they're the predator. But, but by and large, they didn't, they didn't eat uh, these beasts of, beasts of prey. And, uh, and of course, God keeps speaking to Peter throughout this, rise, Peter, kill and eat. So God gives the vision, and then he gives this strange command, and he's telling them this. It's like, I, you know, I, and they're like, oh, you, what did you do? Well, no, I didn't do it. I, I told him I, I wouldn't do it. Oh, good. You know, what did God say then? Well, I said it a second time, and then he told me, he said, you know, the voice answered, verse 9, a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. You see how Peter is defending his actions by putting it back on God. In, in a way, of, the way we talk about it, he's throwing God under the bus at this point. Like, because they're, they're all like, Peter, you're in trouble. He's like, no, no, God's telling me to do this. I kept saying no. God kept telling me yes. I kept saying no. He said, don't, don't call common those things which I have um, cleaned. Okay. Secondly, God forbade making distinctions. Look at verses 11 through 12. Behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. Now, at first, this might just seem like kind of a transitional part of the story without a whole lot um, being communicated. One of the things I want you to see, though, is that uh, little phrase, at that very moment, that Peter uses. What is he saying when he says, at that very moment? I think he's strengthening his case. He's like, I know, you're sitting here listening to me. You're thinking these are the ramblings of a hungry man um, who just had a, a dream and now he's passing it off and trying to say, but do you have to understand it's more than that? At that very moment, I'm just coming out of this dream, whatever you want to call it, and at that very moment, these guys are, ver- are right at the gate. And, uh, and then, add to that, at that very moment, as they're at the gate, and I've just finished with this dream or vision or trance or whatever it was, at that very moment, the Holy Spirit speaks to me and tells me to go with these guys and make no distinction. Make no distinction. What does that mean, to make no distinction? It means that you are to treat them in exactly the same fashion you would treat a fellow Jew. You're not to regard them with that skepticism and that holding back from that, that Jews typically treated Gentiles because Gentiles were unclean and, and they were you know, ritualistically under the law. They weren't clean and so they would keep their distance and, and God's saying that's gone, that's over. You, you can no longer treat them in that way. Much later in Acts 15, and this is actually Peter defending Paul's work among the Gentiles, but he goes back to this story again. So we get it like four or five times in the book of Acts. Look at it. He says, And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So not only is God telling him not to make a distinction, but Peter later says, God made no distinction. Who are we then to make any distinction? 
What's the accusation that, that the Jewish people had brought against Peter? A failure to make distinction. And Peter's like, man, I get it. I'm with you. I didn't want to eat any of those creepy, crawly, weird things that God was telling me to kill and eat. But, but God said, don't make any distinction. We don't have a two-track kind of fellowship in the church. We are not allowed to make any kind of distinction between groups of people in their outward, in all of the various ways, and you know, you're talking about socioeconomically or otherwise, we have no right to do that. James in uh, 2.4 says this, and it's using that same root word. He says, have you not then, he's talking about judging between rich and poor. Have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? We don't do that in the church, do we? I'll tell you what, it is a hard thing at times in the church not to make distinctions, and you know what I'm talking about. You get to know people, you get to trust them, you've, went, you've been with them for a while, and they want to use the church for X, Y, or Z, and you go, okay, sure, yeah. And then some newer person that you don't know, you know they want to use the church, well, I don't know, we've got to go back and look at the policy here, maybe make sure that we're not doing something we shouldn't ought to do. And, uh, and so easily those kinds of distinctions can creep in. I remember uh, an old seminary prof of mine, and this would be quite a few years ago now, gets further and further back the more I talk about it, but... Um, sit in a classroom one day and he goes you know guys it was a practical theology class meaning it was practically of no use but um, <laughs> no. these were supposed to be helpful things to help you prepare to be a pastor and know what was coming your way and he goes you know my first pastor he said I was in New York I believe it was New York and I was in this old Scandinavian neighborhood this old Scandinavian neighborhood church it was a Swedish evangelical free church of which you know we're part of the evangelical free church but they went way back way to when it was just a bunch of Swedes well, the neighborhood, as these things do, you can guess after 80 years, 100 years, had changed. Lo and behold, there were not a lot of people named Johnson and Peterson showing up on the shores, you know, taking up a place there. But it were you know, a bunch of people, I don't know, Puerto Rican or whatever they were. And they brought this guy in, this pastor, and he said, man, I came in there. And they, they said to me they did not want that church to die, and I was supposed to keep it alive. And uh, so he started reaching out to people, and they're like, no, 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 no. So we, we want Scandinavians. It's like, well, if you can give me a few million dollars, I'm sure I can go to Sweden and get a few people to, you know, move here. But otherwise, you're going to have to take what you get or you die. You die or you go broad. You, you die or you accept the people that God has brought to you. It's, it's one or the other, but you you can't have what you want. You want what you used to have. That's gone. That is, that is not going to happen. God forbids making distinctions. I'd like to ask you, just as you think about it here, um, what would you be willing to let God do at, at our church in terms of the kind of people you would allow him to bring? Now, if you hear the question, you should be like, kind of like, what do you mean? I can't tell God who he can bring. Exactly. Exactly. Can he bring people here of any color? Red, white, blue, purple, orange. Not that I can see all those. That's my benefit, but I'm, I'm colorblind. Um, but uh, yeah, can he, can he bring people here of different socioeconomic status? Can he bring to us the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame? There are a lot of work people. Look at this. I mean, you can't, you, even today, you're like, ah, oh, we have to have a lame guy up there. What are would we take whomever God wants to bring? 
If they, what if they spoke a different language as their mother tongue and English was, was spoken very poorly? Would you, would you be able to handle that? These are the kind of questions I think that, these, that this text brings up. We're not that much different than those Jewish brothers who just really didn't want to associate with people that weren't like them. All right, next truth. God commanded the message of salvation to be preached. And this is one of those things where you see it in the things that weren't in the previous um, story. For instance, here uh, we have uh, the fact that it was six Jewish brothers. Did Did you catch that in the earlier account in chapter 10? You're forgiven if you didn't because it wasn't there. We learned that. It's just kind of interesting. We don't need to know the number. But I also can't help but notice what Peter left out in his retelling of the story. Did you notice anything that was missing from chapter 10? That it was told in chapter 10 but he left out? This is one little significant moment when they first meet. Cornelius goes down on his face and worships Peter. I think it's kind of interesting that Peter decided, just, I just don't think I'm going to, that's not an important part of the story. I think I'll just leave that one out, right? I'm not going to make these Jewish guys any more upset than they already are. But this is the part that is really uh, revelatory that had not been shared in chapter 10. Look at verses 13 through 14. See if you can pick out the part we had not earlier heard. And he, that's Cornelius speaking to Peter, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. There's a little detail there that we hadn't gotten earlier. And that is, the angel told him, you need to get Peter here. For what reason? Because he's going to share with you the message of salvation. Isn't that, that's just an incredible part. And I'm thinking of these Jewish guys that are listening to this. When an angel tells you something, you know, when an angel says, you know, jump, you ask how high. You know, if he, if he orders something at your restaurant, you're going to make sure everything's done exactly as it was, was ordered. If, if an angel says, these people need to hear the gospel What else can you do? You have to bring them the gospel. And God wants to get the gospel to everyone. And that means people that don't share our same complexion. As lovely as it is, right? And I know, I mean, God... God has it. I don't know. How many came out and saw the Missionary, Missionary Aviation Fellowship movie a couple weeks ago? You should, you should, if you get a chance to see that, I'm sure you can catch, it, catch up and watch it online or something like that. But um, the part that really spoke to me, one of the parts that spoke to me, was they were in this, in this place in, in Papua. And, uh, and, and the, the Christians there, and the, and the key man in the, in the village that was the leader of the village, that was the, the Christian leader, who was such a godly man, he had a bone through his nose. And had walked barefoot his whole life and, and, and you know, had a little loincloth thing and it's like looked so much different than anybody sitting here today. And, and yet, you watch that and you go like, but that guy is part of the church. That is, and, and would that person be, I don't know that we have a lot of bone through the nose people here in Great Bend. Actually, I think that's catching on a bit. So, would those people be welcome? God sends the Spirit upon all who believed. So if you track the story as Peter relates it, you see how he's demonstrating his own lack of control. He says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Peter's defense is, hey man, I'm on a runaway train. I, I got pushed onto a runaway train. I ended up in Poughkeepsie. 
I didn't end up, I didn't want to go to Poughkeepsie. I can't even spell Poughkeepsie. But that's where the train went. I got off. What else was I going to do? That's kind of the whole, the whole thing uh, in, in terms of his justification. He's like, I was speaking. I, I was told what to speak. The Holy Spirit told what I was supposed to say. I said it. I didn't even get through it. I'm just, you know, kind of painting the general picture. I'm giving him the outline of the gospel. And boom, this thing happens. This happens. I mean, it may seem subtle, but um, Peter's kind of saying here, man, I, I was practically an observer in this thing. God was working almost without me. I was almost like watching the whole thing happen like a third party, like I was an out-of-body experience. I'm back there looking at it, watching it happen, and I'm seeing this, and I'm thinking, this is like when Jesus said that John baptized with water, but I'm going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And I'm just like, this is all happening right. It's just playing out in front of me, and all I can do is tell you what I saw. Don't blame me. It was, it was God. God set up the whole thing. His spirit fell just as Jesus foretold. By the way, do you see the Trinity there? And interesting? Yeah, quite interesting. The triune God was at work. He's trying to get his perspective, I'm sorry, he was trying to get his listeners to see from his perspective and understand that he felt powerless <clears throat> and passive in this whole thing, and it was God at work. The triune God, look at this, and see if you spot the Trinity in this uh, Acts, uh, we're getting toward the end, Acts eleven seventeen. this is kind of where he closes off. He says, uh, if then God, Trinity, guys, God would be the Father, right? Gave the same gift. What's the gift? Who's the gift? Holy Spirit, you know. When we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I should stand in the way? This is just a little tidbit. You can kind of tuck this away. It's not the main point of the sermon, but it's something that you might like to know. Do not interfere when the Trinity is involved. Okay? Don't go to war with the Trinity. That's just my little bit of advice. If God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are fully on board for something, that you just don't want to get in the way of that. In fact, that's kind of where Peter takes it. Um, he, who are we to stand in God's way? He brings it down to that with this little internal dialogue that's kind of a rhetorical question that he's asking himself, but he's really asking them. He's really stating it to them. Who are we to stand in God's way? Should we strive to make distinctions in the church of the kind that separates slave and free, Jew and Greek, male and female, uh, rich and poor, whatever distinction, whatever group you want to bring into that, English-speaking, non-English-speaking? Would God have us to do that? Who would we be opposed to if we did such? We'd be opposing God. We'd be jumping in the way of the, of the Trinity. Imagine if, for a moment if, if you'd survived the Titanic and, uh, and as you're coming up to the lifeboats, they say, you, young man, we're, putting you, we're deputizing you. You're in charge of this lifeboat. And then they start loading the lifeboat, right? So you're fortunate enough that you're, you're a guy, but you get off of the Titanic alive. And, and you get rescued. They pull the boat in, and they look at the content of your boat um, which they put on the boat when you were back there at the Titanic. They're like, wait a second, just a minute here. We've got a roster of all of the uh, first-class passengers, and we're not getting as many first-class as we were hoping for. You know, asters and so forth aren't showing up, but you've got, you know, half of your boat's full of these scum Irish from steerage. We didn't want them. They weren't the first choice of who got to be on the lifeboat. What would, your, what would you say? 
I didn't put them on there. It, it, it's not my call. That's, I just got told to steer the boat, and they put these people on there. The, the, the people in charge made the decision. Who gets to come into the church? Is it our decision? Do, do we make that call? No, it's, it's God. God is the one who calls. If God forbid we miss our old friends and because we miss our old friends, our hearts turn cold toward the people that God sends us and puts aboard our lifeboat, shame on us. Shame on us. Who are we? By God's grace, we're here today as part of God's family. God did that. God did that. And whom God sends, whatever they look like, wherever they're from, that is a God thing. Now, there are three great truths. You're looking at this going, down. Ah, it sounds like he's finishing. I am almost finished, but all the three, last three points come quickly from verse 18, and there's just three really powerful points. It all keeps it still within God's sovereignty here. It says, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So first of all, God grants repentance. God, you would be surprised how many times in the New Testament that almost precise phrase is used. Isn't that strange that God gives it? Look, for instance, at Acts 5.31. There, Peter is speaking as well. He's preaching to the Jews. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, to give repentance. We think of repentance as something we do. That's us. That's us making a decision, turning whatever. Here, this is describing the entire work of God in salvation in a person's life. That's what it means when it's talking about that God grants repentance. He's saying that God does the work by the preaching of the gospel, by the work of the Holy Spirit that turns a person from darkness to light, from worshiping not God to worshiping the living God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is a God thing. The reason you're a Christian today is not because you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. That was a God thing. And I want to say to you, look, I mean, if it seems like I'm just preaching at you, I want you to know I would love nothing more if we could just reserve about half of this section here for my whole family. You're like, Jay, it's just you and Debbie. No, no, I I want all of them to move back here or for the first time to Great Bend all the ones that are lost, I want them to get saved. I just want my church to be mostly my family. Some of the rest of you can come too, okay? Heart of hearts, aren't we a little bit like that? That's what we want. We, we, we want that, but it is God. It, 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 in that day, in glory, when all of the saints surround the throne, it will be all those whom God has granted repentance. End of story. It's God's. God gives life. That's the second part of verse 18, God gives life. Repentance is to life. What that means is, is that when we come to Christ, when, when this thing happens, this, this conversion of God that, that is worked by the Spirit, you and I at that point come into a relationship with the Father and the Son. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the one God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. That's eternal life, is in that relationship, which then stretches on from, from the moment of conversion on through all eternity. And as they realize that God has done this, they all right, Peter, we're letting you off the hook. We get it. God did this. And God has actually given life 
Gentiles, who thought such a thing? Who would have imagined it? They fell silent and they gave glory to God. And that's the third thing, glory be to God. Their mouths were shut. You remember me saying that Peter could have just said, ah, shut your yaps, right? He could have, I mean, legitimately. I mean, he was Peter. He had some, he had some clout. But he doesn't do that. He takes them through those truths and then they realize it. It, it, it. The coin drops and they're like, God, God shuts their mouth. And they cooperate in that. They shut their mouths, you know, like, yeah. And they give glory to God. Isn't that beautiful? That's where we want to end up with this whole thing. Where there are people, there will always be problems and challenges, uh, and that goes for churches. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced any problems ever in a church, but they can happen. And uh, I, I'll give this caveat. Look, if, if you're in a church somewhere, and that church is going off the rails, and by that I mean they are getting into false teaching, they are, uh, there's, there's rampant sin that's not being addressed or some such thing as that, then sure, there's a time to leave. But I ask you to consider who has been at work in our church, and that's not me, by the way, in case that was the implication, no, and give God glory. Embrace your church. Embrace your church as God's chosen family for you. God sovereignly called a people to himself. It was God's right and when he called us he called us to make no distinction he says that again and again throughout the scripture he's commanded us to preach the gospel to preach salvation his spirit has been given to all who believe in Jesus Christ so the the bottom line becomes who are we to stand in God's way you say but the church isn't what I wanted it to be I wanted it to be stuck in time from 10 years ago oh 10 years ago what a church what a church oh right we just want it to be frozen in time. I'm sorry. It's like, that, it's like that little Swedish church in New York. Yeah, you can want it all day long, but that's not where God's growing it. That's, that's just not how it works. And when this whole thing is said and done, shouldn't we just kind of put our hand over our mouth and look at the church and say, God, thank you. Thank you for what you are doing, for whom you're bringing into this family. They're new family members. You know, so get to know them and reach out and, uh, and enjoy, enjoy. If you're not uh, yet part of our family, I want to welcome you, dear unbeliever. There is um, there's good news here, and that is God doesn't care about your background. And may I say, and, and we say this even though we know that it's hard for us, we don't care about your background either. We don't care where you're coming from where you were born, what country, what, what culture, or anything of the like, because the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of salvation, is commanded to be preached to you. And so we do, with, with gladness, with great joy. We, we proclaim to you that Jesus Christ was crucified on a cross. He died, he was buried, he rose the third day. And then if you turn to him, that, that work of repentance, which is, which is genuinely a work of God, but if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, not only do you come to have eternal life because you come into union with God, the Trinity, not only do you have that, but you become part of the body of Christ. And that body of Christ has a local, you know, 
a local appearing, and, and that's the church, the local church, and, and we embrace you. We would embrace you. I have to hear an amen on this because I need to know if you agree with me on that today. We will embrace those whom God brings. Amen? Amen. amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that, um, that, that you make it clear that, that you don't make distinctions about groups. And we, we tend to, Lord, we miss things the way they once were. We, we want our church to stay static and be made up of mostly old friends and family members. Those are kind of natural human, that's sort of human nature, Lord. We want everybody to speak Swedish and eat lutefisk or whatever it might be. But, but Lord, we know that that's not right. We know, Lord, that that's not how you will it. And, and so, Lord, we shut our mouths and, and, and we rejoice and we glorify you for your great plan and salvation. And we wanna embrace those you bring to us. And we pray you'll bring many, that you'll use us in bringing them and that you will be glorified in all of this and that your people might rejoice therein. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.